hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to start what's going to be an extremely long series on Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. Now before jumping into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineau. If you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe. You'll see videos I release every single week. Uh, and you're going to want to be subscribed so you'll see the follow-ups to this episode. There are going to be many of them. Uh, if you want to help me out, do all those things. Like, share, subscribe. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. There are links in the description for that. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form if you'd prefer that. Or if you found this in podcast form, you can also find me on YouTube where I sometimes accompany my uh, episodes with videos. So go and do your thing, whatever you're the most comfortable with, and sit back, try to relax, given the subject matter here, uh, as we jump into this text. Now, I want to give some explanation as to how I'm going to approach this text. Now, it is broken into three parts. The first part is called anti-Semitism, the second part is called imperialism, and the third part is called totalitarianism. Now, the way that it is broken up is in such a way as to build towards the formation of totalitarianism, where Arendt tells us that logics of anti-Semitism and uh, imperialism set the foundations for the formation of totalitarianism as we would see it or saw it form in Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. Now, with that being said, I'm going to be doing this in six episodes, which I know is algorithmic suicide. Uh, no one's going to click anything after episode two, I'm sure. But I promise you that you need to get, or I promise you, I insist that you make it all the way to the end because that's what this text really is. It's building up towards the final part to totalitarianism. Everything else are, are building blocks to that point. It's all brilliant, but Hannah Arendt is, is a narrative writer in this text. She's building towards this climax. So I'm going to be doing it in six parts. The first two parts will cover the first part of the book, anti-Semitism. The third and the fourth part will cover the second part of the book, imperialism. And the, four, and the fifth and sixth part will cover the final part of the book, totalitarianism. Now, there's a small chance that it might actually be five parts. If you've clicked on this video and it says one of five, then you'll know it's actually five parts and I will have rearranged things. And in the next episode, I'll give a little update as to how it's actually going to be broken down. Now, I'm, I'm going on and on. Let's jump into this text because we got a lot to cover here. So she starts here, as with most texts, with a preface. Now, the preface to the first edition wants to stress that at the time that she was writing this, in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, and she revisited it quite a few times after that, um, she was musing on the fact that the world had gone through two world wars and there was essentially a, a looming third, war, uh, third world war in the Cold War. And at the time when she was reflecting on this after the Second World War, she was identifying many of the same elements that led up to totalitarianism and the Second World War. And some of these elements include mass homelessness uh, on a really on an unprecedented scale and, and rootlessness on an unprecedented uh, scale as well. And also loneliness, which is a very important part of this text, how loneliness contributes to the formation of totalitarianism. 
Now, in the preface as well, she wants to stress that totalitarianism and fascism, even though there is a difference, or tyranny, despotism, are not foreign to Europe. They're very much embedded within the logics of European culture, from imperialism to anti-Semitism, really that are really strong parts of European culture. And so she wants to stress that everything that occurred leading up to World War II and eventually in its crystallization in totalitarianism was not alien or foreign to Europe. They all, it all worked together. So recognizing this, Arendt implores that in order not to repeat the horrors of World War II, we can't just turn back the clock or try to imagine a time before uh, before World War II, before the horrors of totalitarianism, before anti-Semitism, because the history of Europe is rife with these logics, rife with these hateful beliefs and acts. And so the goal is instead for her to imagine a new political project, to look forward, not backward, in remedying malaise, the ailments that produced totalitarianism that would culminate in the concentration camps and that targeted Jews and gay people and Roma people and, and so many others. Now this pushes us into the preface to part one, part one being anti-Semitism. And she opens this by stressing that there is a difference between anti-Semitism and just the hatred of Jewish people. And she traces the difference to a difference in the approach or recognition of what stands in for Jewish people. What is it about Jewish people that certain people find repulsive? And so she says that anti-Semitism is primarily a secular ideology that locates in Jewish people a certain racial identity so that they are opposed not on the basis of their belief or creed or anything, but as being a race that can be discriminated against, that can be rendered subhuman. Whereas in the case of just a hatred of Jewish people, and I, I'm using the word just as though that's there's anything redeeming about it or that there, it's not um, horrible in itself. So I want to stress that I'm trying not to do that. But in the way that she frames Jewish hatred, it can come down to just hating one, someone's religion and someone's uh, cultural background and so on. There isn't the implicit association of the people with a race. Because this, in the case of totalitarianism and the horrors of World War II, is what contributed to, uh, I guess, enticing an entire population, an entire continent, into hating a group of people with so much uh, fervor. Now, this idea of Jewishness being a racial identity was not restricted to people trying to just separate white people from Jewish people of the, you know, um, the ethnic Eurostate of Nazi Germany from everybody else. There were efforts, of course, on the part of Jewish people to acknowledge a fundamental difference between Jewish people and uh, peoples of other denominations. And given the entire history of racial oppression that has been uh, leveled against Jewish people, it makes sense that there is there was that feeling of um, there being a racial difference. Now, this also dovetails with uh, Jewish faith or Jewish belief that they are the chosen people in God's eyes and are therefore uh, destined for some 
greatness, which, of course, the Nazis just use as um, a sign of Jewish propaganda to bolster Jewish power, even though, of course, all of that is founded on total myth and nothing about it was grounded in reality. Now, in relation to uh, Jewish hatred, anti-Semitism is much newer in the course of human history. Now, I think that there are certain people would take issue with this in how it's um, it comes down to the language that Arendt is using. But whether or not she uses the term anti-Semitism as the new concept she is describing, I think that her point stands in that she's describing a new kind of discrimination that emerged in the 19th and 20th centuries in Europe when Jewish people began to be assimilated into everyday culture. There was... Um, a little bit less oppression directed against them, and they were starting to occupy places of authority, be it political or economic, you know, opening businesses, having some kind of recognition. This opened up a new kind of discrimination, which isn't the fault of Jewish people for entering these zones. It's squarely the fault of racists and and, uh, other prejudiced people who believed it was necessary to distinguish themselves from these newly entering people into their space. Now, with this being said, because we're still in the preface to part one here, she wants to stress that her exploration of anti-Semitism here is not a complete one. Really, her focus is on totalitarianism. So in that way, she's a little bit selective in how she recounts the history of anti-Semitism in 19th and 20th century Europe. And she's very clear. She says, you know, I, I don't have the space here to really go into a very, you know, deep history of the emergence of anti-Semitism in Europe. Somebody, and she says, like, someone needs to do that work. Instead, she is just drawing to the most important points that signal, that uh, explain the formation of totalitarianism. Now, in relation to anti-Semitism, sorry, in relation to totalitarianism, anti-Semitism takes different forms. So in pre-totalitarian states, anti-Semitism might just be the way we described it, viewing Jewish people as a race that is somehow subhuman and therefore uh, ripe for discrimination, ripe for extermination, and so on. Now, in totalitarian anti-Semitism, that still remains. However, there's a strong emphasis on conspiracy theories in order to draw kind of fake attention to Jewish people as having a great deal of power when they in fact did did not. Now these narratives, these conspiracy theories, were operationalized, they they were used, not necessarily to call attention to any kind of real world conspiracy, but instead to create the the illusion that there was this real conspiracy that then demanded another conspiracy to combat it. And this is the conspiracy of the uh, the Third Reich, of the SS, of or of the Bolsheviks in Stalinist Russia. And so it may be that people within a totalitarian system do not actually believe in the things that they are saying. They are just putting forward these conspiracy theories in order to justify their own uh, striving towards global power. Now that puts us here into part one, anti-Semitism with chapter one, anti-Semitism as an outrage to common sense. Now perhaps counterintuitively, 
anti-Semitism increased with the decline in the idea of the nation-state. Now, if there's anything that I am going to recommend you take from this text, it is that the nation-state or the idea of uh, the nation-state did not increase as these totalitarian regimes took power. Now, this might seem strange. Some people might say, well, I thought it was all about nationalism. I thought it was all about uh, you know, national identity, which is true. It is. But when Arendt here is talking about the nation state, she's talking about a steady equilibrium between the idea of the nation, which is a kind of imaginary concept, it is nebulous, in relation to or, or within in balance with uh, the state, which is more of a um, legislative functioning system. What happens in the emergence of totalitarianism is a gradual attack on this steady balance, this equilibrium between the nation and the state, where the nation becomes superior. And so people identify to these imaginary categories that they don't actually understand, all the while renouncing politics, renouncing legislative uh, powers, renouncing um, democracy, and so on. So anti-Semitism and totalitarianism intensified as the nation-state declined. And this also explains why there was an emphasis upon expansion on the part of Nazi Germany. They were very much looking to get away from the limitations of their state in order to expand into new territories, a desire to leave the state. So why Jewish people? Why were Jewish people selected uh, to, to be the primary targets of Nazi Germany? Well, obviously, there are many reasons. And she wants to dissuade us from thinking or believing the narrative that uh, the Jewish people were just a scapegoat for people's problems following World War One. Where in world after World War One uh, and with the Great Depression, people were really suffering in Europe, especially in Germany. And so, some people, and certainly a narrative I imagine many of you have heard, was that they were just looking for anyone to blame. Now, that is part of it. But at the same time, that narrative ignores how anti-Semitism has a long history way before uh, the First World War, way before the Great Depression. Now, she says that right here, uh, one of the possible reasons or one of the contributing factors to a specific targeting of Jewish people was their proximity to power. Now, there are so many different ways that she goes about analyzing this, but at the moment, at right now, she's going to elaborate as we go on. She says that Jewish people were gaining quite a bit of economic prosperity at the time, given, you know, more access to resources that would allow it. But they had dwindling, or they were dwindling in terms of political power and political representation. Now, she draws a parallel here between uh, the treatment of the Jewish people in Nazi Germany and leading up to it, and the treatment of the aristocracy by the French during the French Revolution. And she says that during the French Revolution, the aristocracy uh, remained very wealthy, but they lost a lot of political power. So without there being a direct connection between their political power and their wealth, the aristocracy was viewed as being uh, a burden, being exploiters, 
That is, they weren't giving anything in the term in terms of political power or legislative authority at all. They were just taking from the people. And she says that there might be a similar way to view why so many people targeted and saw the Jewish people as being uh, a good, a good, um, I guess in this case, a good target for uh, what would come. And even in in France, where anti-Semitism ran rampant uh, among pretty much every single European country leading up to World War II, uh, she uses the example of the Dreyfus Affair, which we're going to get into in a lot more detail uh, in a, a little later on. But she says that the, the Dreyfus Affair occurred under the Third Republic when Jews had all but vanished from important positions. That is, they were disappearing from these positions while still maintaining, while still having some degree of economic wealth. And if people have wealth without power, they're viewed as parasites that, that contribute nothing. And it's just fuel or it's just ammunition to then say that the reason that these people have wealth is through surreptitious, through sneaky, through conspiratorial means, which contributes to that those conspiracy theories that Jewish people are trying to organize a world, a new world order or anything like that. What else is important to note is that while she recognizes anti-Semitism as being something new, she obviously recognizes that Jewish people have been persecuted for ever, essentially, and which is a problem, obviously. But she really wants to give us a new uh, frame of mind to engage with what led up to the Holocaust and eventually uh, culminated in the Holocaust just because... While many of the logics were found just within European culture, it was a radical departure from anything the world had seen before it. And so it is important to both situate it along a continuum of anti-Jewish hatred while acknowledging the newness of it, the novelty of it. And it's important to maintain this balance between the two to really grasp what had gone on. Now, this puts us into us into chapter two, titled The Jews, the Nation State, and the Birth of Anti-Semitism. So around the year 1800, and you know, a lot of things were going on at this time, you know, Declaration of the Rights of Man, and, and, and other things, and the uh, American Revolution had occurred, just occurred, uh, that declared that people were all equal. What we saw around that time was an emerging idea of this thing called the nation state that was supposed to foster uh, equality and homogeneity when it comes to recognizing humans as having basic fundamental rights that need to be uh, defended. And so previously excluded groups, including Jewish people, were being welcomed into spaces they weren't welcome in before under the auspices of uh, everybody having the same rights. Of course, this excluded women, it excluded black people, and still excluded Jewish people in, a, in large measure. But the, these things were, at least on the surface, getting more equitable. They were getting better. But it had some issues in that it just replaced one form of inequality for another one, where previously Hannah Arendt describes how it was more of a political inequality, where certain families that would assume political status were the rulers of everything. But now after the emergence of this idea of the rights of all human beings uh, and, you know, people's 
uh, ability to uh, pursue happiness and, and so on. What we saw instead, or what we saw emerge alongside that, is a new kind of inequality, largely a class-based inequality. So not everyone had the same rights and freedoms as everyone else, but now there was a new thing to blame that on, and it could be reduced to somebody's own work ethic. You know, people could then say, oh, well, you had all the opportunities laid out in front of you. It was just because you were lazy and stuck to the lower classes that made it so that you couldn't actually enjoy all of these rights that were just available to you. And it's your own fault that you couldn't uh, attain them fully, couldn't fully exercise them. Now, Jewish people at this moment occupied a kind of special place within society because they didn't exactly fit within the basic class paradigm that was emerging. Many of them had wealth, just like other groups, but because of their continued, um, the continued discriminations leveled against them that excluded them from certain circles, they didn't just fold right into class-based life so easily. And not all of them were uh, business owners, not all of them had uh, workers working for them, so they didn't neatly fit in either the category of capitalist or workers. They had wealth from before, perhaps they were working in finance, they were trading, you know, among other people as well, uh, and they gained their wealth that way. And the state, or many of the states in Europe, very much liked this position of the Jewish people who were largely internationally located. And when I say internationally located, I mean that they didn't have a specific territory to call their own at the time. And so you would have Jewish people drawing lines of affiliation across nations, which was actually beneficial to many states who wanted people that could essentially easily move money between, uh, between other states in order to facilitate trade and so on. And it just so happens that Jewish people had a certain connections that were not necessarily afforded to everybody else. But the thing is, of course, and it's important to stress this, other people did have these, uh, these opportunities and they did capitalize on them. But what makes this particularly important to note is that unlike other people who at the time would just be, uh, would belong to a nation, like, and let's be real, they're all white guys who occupied these positions, their identity wouldn't be something that could be recognized as a problem or that could be recognized as a problem later on. So they would just disappear into the fold of basic financial actions, whereas people who were marked on the basis of their Jewish identity, a new conclusion could come from that. And that conclusion was that all Jewish people are just interested in money, they're interested in international finance, and have no affiliation to anyone and everything, and are trying to essentially establish a kind of world government bank that could then be used to control the world. Even though there were non-Jewish people doing these exact same things as well. But because they belong to the dominant class or uh, race or so on, they could then disappear into the fold and not be, or nothing can be concluded about their identity and used to uh, generalize everything about their identity. And one of the ways I like to think about this, because my own work is on conspiracy theories, is that despite all of the evidence that white dudes have most of the wealth on planet Earth, you very rarely hear conspiracy theorists, you know, the big conspiracy theorists we might think of, Alex Jones, David Icke, and so on, who are all so quick to draw connections between convenient points 
convenient identity markers, we never hear them say, oh, there must then be a white man conspiracy to take over the world. We don't hear that. And that is because for them, that is not an identity marker that is poses a problem or uh, is an issue for them. Whereas other identity markers like Jewishness are used to uh, create generalizations about the people, which reveals that these conspiracy theorists are not really interested in this conspiracy they're describing. They're actually interested in putting forward a political message about a certain group, largely a hateful message, that they are using the rhetoric of the conspiracy theory to uh, put forward. But anyways, I digress. I hope that clarified it a little bit. Now, at the time, or between 1800 and 1900, there were going to be big changes occurring in Europe. And this was largely due to industrialization, where Europe, as it, as it began to industrialize, began to accrue its wealth, and a lot more wealth for that matter, in a different way. It was relying less upon um, wealth, ancestral wealth, or wealth from you know previous generations, and now suddenly there were certain opportunities afforded through new ways of traveling, new ways of transporting goods, new ways to essentially accumulate wealth and to accumulate capital. And during this time, because not many Jewish people by virtue of, or through, because of uh, discrimin largely discriminatory policies, a lot of Jewish people didn't actually own land or capital that they could use to make factories or hire employees. They were then seen as uh, being kind of parasitical because they had wealth without contributing to the overall GDP of a country or hiring workers, creating jobs, and so on. They were seen as being uh, exploiters of a system rather than contributors to a system. Now, this didn't mean that they weren't useful. Still, there were desires to have various connections in different, uh, in different nations. And Jewish people who were who had affiliations with one another but belonged to different nations could then facilitate these trades, can facilitate these communications. And so the bourgeois and capitalists could use, um, could largely use Jewish people to facilitate their movement of money. Now this sets the stage or is like a preliminary point to what we will discuss later. And that is that Jewish people weren't the ones that were, even if they were the ones dealing with finance, they weren't the ones actually benefiting the most from these kinds of transactions, these international transactions. It was the capitalists, the just white uh, capitalists, be they belonging to German, be, be they German or British or whatever, that were actually benefiting. But again, these are not easily recognizable identity markers, as is Jewishness. So they weren't targeted later on or weren't seen as being the problem. But in this process, through industrialization and through international trade, the idea of the nation state began to wane a little bit and it started to buckle. And that is because people could easily move from place to place. People could uh, trade with other people. People could be exploited or exploited. People could, be, could experience different cultures. People could experience different identities in a much easier way, new ways to travel and, and transportation and so on. And so there was less uh, attachment to a single place as being your home and what it meant, uh, you know, just adopting the customs of that land. 
suddenly you could see how other people organize things, and this might encourage you to ask questions about whether or not your country's way of organizing things were necessarily best. So as the idea of the nation-state began to buckle, began to weaken a little bit, so too did all of the things associated with the nation-state began to be viewed suspiciously, like the bourgeois in a lot of cases, or like, or as in the case, as in like the Bolsheviks, or uh, Jewish people who were associated with state power through financial means, as the Nazis capitalized on that narrative. And so what we saw was that anti-Semitism was very closely related to anti-state sentiments, because the state was beginning to lose its power, meaning yet it still had uh, a kind of symbolic place as being a determining factor of people's lives. And so everything associated with that was also going to be viewed suspiciously because, you know, it retained its power even though it was losing its power. So people were losing faith in it. And so everything associated with it, the bourgeois, uh, Jewish people, and, and so on, were then viewed suspiciously. Now she makes the point to say that different groups had different responses to this weakening of the state. And she says that workers unions, workers groups, and just workers in general, didn't turn their ire or didn't um, angrily direct themselves against Jewish people. They were more focused in challenging the bourgeois. And they actually saw very much, you know, if you read Marx, there can be a productive use of the state if it is organized properly, uh, not if it's organized by greedy, blood-sucking bourgeois. But that doesn't mean, of course, that workers were not anti-Semitic. Like, you can't, can't get that wrong, and we'll talk about that more as we go on. But it's just important to recognize that there is this attachment between the idea of the state and Jewish people. And as one began to wane, so too did the other. And this is also can, you know, looking back to uh, after uh, Napoleon's defeat, when the Rothschilds, as you know, the famous uh, Jewish family, very much gained in prominence and, and wealth and were trying to save essentially and um, loaning money to many war struck countries. And so people obviously didn't feel so good about this. They felt like the Rothschilds were just playing uh, on both sides of the court. That is, I forget the expression, but they were just, they were playing on both sides and that they didn't have any direct affiliation and they were viewed as the secret like puppet masters to everything that was going on. And it was also at this time that new forms of equality were starting to emerge, or at least the ideas of that equality were starting to emerge. But for people like the Rothschilds, like Jewish people like the Rothschilds, it didn't mean a whole lot because they were rich and they were fairly well off. Uh, but for everyday Jewish people, it was a big deal that these new uh, edicts were put in place, new efforts to attain equality were put in place because not everyone had such so many opportunities. But even though these efforts for toward equality came through, there were still many reactionary forces behind the state and in that occupied state positions that tried to exclude Jewish people from most institutions, from you know uh, universities, from political life, and so on. And this birthed two kinds of anti-Semitism. On the one hand, there was uh, an anti-Semitism that had some exceptions. That is, it liked Jewish people 
if they were the minority of really rich ones, they were okay, but the rest were bad. Or there was the anti-Semitism that saw a few Jewish people as being like the secret wielders of global power. And everyone, every other Jewish person is okay, but they all point to, uh, and they're all kind of in cahoots with these few rich Jewish people. And this might be a good point to insert a little ad. Okay, I hope that, that wasn't too jarring. Uh, I always select which ads are allowed up there, so it shouldn't be anything problematic. But anyways, yeah, let's keep going here. So at that time when the Rothschilds were being associated with a kind of global secret order of power, a new idea emerged as well. An idea that, was, that would essentially gain traction all the way up essentially to today. Like anti-Semitism is still a huge problem today, of course, but it would certainly lead up to World War II. And this was the idea of there being a state within the state, which is to say that there's a secret order of people that actually pull the strings to what's going on in the state. Now, we, we very much saw this in the United States with this idea of the deep state and certain Jewish names always being thrown around, like George Soros running the deep state or, or even the Rothschilds. And this just harkens back to these earlier forms of anti-Semitism which is why we have to be very uh, careful uh, and, and very, very vigilant to oppose these kinds of narratives. And even though there was no truth behind this, that there were these secret organizations running things, when the state began to lose power, still people pointed to who they believed to be secretly running things. Those were Jewish people, even though they weren't the ones benefiting from the state's greedy actions uh, in foreign lands or the greedy actions of some capitalist producers and so on. They weren't benefiting from any of this, but they were a convenient target to distract and to deflect from the people that were actually benefiting. And again, this fed into the idea that rich people who, if they were Jewish, were used uh, or viewed as being parasites because they weren't actually contributing to things. They weren't like capitalist landowners that were giving people jobs. They were just essentially accumulating wealth from their uh, history, from their uh, family line, and were accumulating wealth through interest by lending out loans that they would be paid back for later. But again, it wasn't just Jewish people. It was only that Jewish people were the ones that were actually associated with this because of this uh, identity marker that has historically been associated with money. It was just convenient largely to uh, pick out the Jewish people. Now, the petty bourgeois, little bourgeois, you know, small business owners were particularly um, bothered by Jewish people because they were trying to make a living for themselves and they were being fed these narratives that Jewish people were just earning money by doing nothing. And so these people who had a fair amount of political clout they actually were being represented in government. These were people with some amount of wealth, some amount of power, were then uh, contributing to these narratives, these anti-Semitic narratives. And so we began to see the emergence in Austria, Germany, and France. We began to see the emergence of anti-state and anti-Semitic political parties arriving on the scene. And these this was happening around the 1880s and and beyond that, where there were many efforts to overhaul the idea of the state. And with it, that state within the state, the secret 
organizations that actually ran things. And these parties tapped into a kind of populism that was kept restrained under the rule of the aristocracy. And because Jewish people were viewed as being international, having no direct association with any state uh, in any neat way, so too did many of these parties see themselves wanting to move beyond the state in order to match and to meet that perceived threat, that anti-state threat that they saw in the Jewish people. Now, these anti-Semitic and anti-state parties that emerged around the 1880s, 1870s in Europe began to fizzle out around 1900, really when industrialization was starting to take off. And this is largely due to the fact that people don't revert to populism or to the conspiracy theories often found within populism if they're doing well financially and politically and socially. It's in times of turmoil, at least this is what conspiracy theory scholars have really come to show now, it's really in times of turmoil and political, social, economic instability that conspiracy theories run the most rampant and then uh, populism becomes the most delectable alternative to whatever is going on at the time. Now, despite this, despite the fact that there was general prosperity, people were doing fairly well, anti-Semitism still remained, even though it might have subsided a little bit. It still remained, and many of the motivating factors behind it leading up to this point would reemerge later on. Now, all political parties really at the time, even not the like most fascistic, fascistic ones that we would see in Europe, were had elements of anti-Semitism in them. Even the, you know, the most leftist um, political parties who associated themselves with the plight of the majority uh, had these anti-Semitic uh, beliefs because they saw the lower classes, the lower middle classes being exploited by the state, being left behind by the state, which was then associated with Jewish people not caring about them and so on. And so they would uh, implement some anti-Semitic ideas in order to bolster their political message, in order to speak to uh, the masses, in order to speak to all the workers who felt themselves disenfranchised by the state. And then in, in like France, for example, the socialist parties uh, were anti-Semitic because they were anti-clerical parties. And it was only with the Dreyfus Affair, which again, we'll talk about in the next episode, uh, it was only with the Dreyfus Affair when there was clerical support for anti-Semitism that they toned down the anti-Semitic rhetoric in their party. Because really they were anti-clerical and as soon as the clergy started to oppose Jewish people, they didn't want to have any affiliation with the clergy. So then they aligned themselves at least uh, reluctantly with Jewish people. But still, during this time, and there was a what she calls the golden age of security between about 1900 and the start of World War I and a little bit beyond it. Um, she calls this the golden age of security where there wasn't all that much going on, uh, at least negatively towards Jewish people. People were largely thriving and up, you know, up through the twenties with the, uh, everyone was doing pretty well economically. Jewish people started to occupy more positions in universities, in journalism, in business, uh, you know, in academia. They started to occupy all of these different positions. But this began to light, uh, light the flame of resentment 
because suddenly people who were historically excluded from these organizations were allowed in. And when things started to get bad, you know, we had the uh, Great Depression, we had what came after World War I in Europe, people needed to draw their attention somewhere and to say that, oh, what really happened? What, what is new that caused this? Oh, Jewish people are now here. Let us then therefore use uh, them as an explanation for why everything is going poorly for us. And yeah, that'll put us here into chapter three titled The Jews and Society, but I'll leave this one off here uh, just because it's the best to organize it this way. And yeah, so if you listen this far, I really want to encourage you to make it through the rest of these because they're, they're extremely important with everything that's going on today. Um, but if there's anything I got wrong or anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. Hannah Arendt is just such a, a brilliant thinker and this text is just... It's not the longest one I've ever presented. Marx was much longer, but you know, Marx would go on these long descriptions of the, the hardships that workers faced. And is it totally necessary to explain every single instance of violence inflicted on workers? I think just a few examples gets the point across, whereas with a text like this that is just so rich with historical detail, I have to really parse through it and provide a lot of it to give you the most clear picture while, you know, filtering what isn't necessary. So that's why this is going to be so long. But anyway, so next episode, we're going to take up from chapter three, the Jews in society. For now, take care.